How cool is that? So fun watching Bentley get baptized today by his grandmother. Just a picture of what we talk about when we talk about being a multi-generational church here at Crossroads Church. And Bentley, man, your testimony was, apparently he's just out of here. His testimony was great. He is so articulate in his faith as an eight-year-old, isn't he? Can we just give him a round of a hand? I mean... He explained the gospel as good as anyone, and if you're here today and you have not been baptized and you are a believer, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, here at Crossroads Church, we believe that baptism is just really an outward expression of an inward reality of Jesus coming in and cleaning the inside of our lives, making our hearts white as snow. And we follow Jesus in baptism simply because he asks us to. He says, make that public declaration of faith. And so we love seeing people get baptized, whether that be kids, teenagers, adults, we love hearing the story of the way that Jesus is changing lives, and then to be able to tell those stories as many times as we can. And so uh, that's what that was all about today. Well, I want to welcome all of you here uh, at our Thornton location, as well as you joining us online, whatever digital means uh, you're joining us on today. Uh, Fort Lupton is running so low today. They are with uh, Alex, our pastoral resident up there, is actually taking this entire series and preaching it up there at Fort Lupton. And speaking about the series today, I'm pretty excited because we are beginning a brand new series today called Do Justice. Now, the reason that I've been looking forward to this series is because anytime that we talk about justice, immediately what we all think about is the injustices that we've seen and experienced in this world, don't we? And when it comes to injustice, particularly in this world, injustice is a really big deal, isn't it? Injustice is a big deal when it comes to our faith. In fact, I would argue that injustice is one of the major hindrances of maintaining our faith in God. That more people have stepped back from the faith, more people have abandoned the faith, more people are unwilling to even talk about what faith in God looks like because of the injustices that they've seen and experienced in this world. And maybe that's you today. Maybe that's where you're sitting today. And if you are, man, I am so grateful that you're a part of this service today. And I would encourage you over these next five weeks to hang with us throughout this entire series because the reality is, is that living in Colorado, because of what has happened over the course of this last year, that we seem to constantly be at the boiling point of social justice. On any given day, I can be asked any number of, so, of questions about social issues, and I can be branded a hero, a warrior, a victim, or a villain. And while that's certainly true in Colorado, it is not unique to us that this is happening across our country, even across our worlds. That our whole culture, our whole society seems to have entered into the octagon fighting over justice. And let's be clear, I'm not even sure we all know what the term justice even means. But we look through and we can see Facebook feeds and Twitter streams loaded up as the social war zone of our time. With articles and op-eds, think pieces and news updates as ammunition fired between ideologies. That very rarely is there a day that goes by where I'm not asked as a pastor my thoughts and opinions on racial discrimination, abortion, welfare, healthcare, the environment, immigration, the definition of marriage, poverty weights, and economic issues. The list goes on and on. And when it comes to social issues, this isn't just something that concerns the secular world, is it? That when it comes to the social justice issues of our day, this is concerning to our faith. 
that when it comes to modern conservatives and liberals, they all agree that Jesus spoke about justice issues, that Jesus was concerned about issues of justice. We see it from the golden rule, his teaching on the golden rule, all the way to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And while Jesus' main ministry was not just speaking about the social issues of the day, it was a big part of his ministry, and for many of us, we need to realize that today. It was one of the major factors of him being identified as the long-awaited Messiah. So in light of our cultural temperature, current cultural temperature around social issues, it seems timely that we tackle this as a church. That when we look out at the world and see the social issues that are going on, primarily they revolve around four issues, that being race, poverty, sex, and life. That just a quick glance through the major news sources of our day, whether that be CNN or Fox News or NBC, whatever it may be where you read, you'll see these types of headlines pulled from just these last couple of weeks. The first one concerning race, the moral reckoning of history, looking back at the Tulsa race massacre some hundred years later. Concerning poverty right here in Colorado, homeless sweeps are causing controversy in Denver ahead of Major League Baseball's All-Star Game. Concerning sex, this article pulled, what does the utopian culture of the sexual revolution look like? Concerning life, Biden's silence on execution adds to death penalty disarray. So here's the question that we all have to wrestle with. In light of all of this, how do we, the church, how do we as the church speak to the issues of social justice in our backyards, those that are happening in our communities and in our cities? How do we speak about these issues without throwing gasoline on the raging fire that is already going? Because let's be real, what's missing from the cultural conversation is the church that the Christian church has been put on the sideline on these issues, and if we were being real and honest, we are content to live there. And yet we live in a world that is crying out for justice, and the wisdoms of the scriptures are desperately needed. The voice of the church needs to be heard because it is us, the church, that needs to be leading the conversation, not abstaining from it. I mean, at least that's true if we believe the Bible. It was the great Solomon who wrote in Proverbs 28, 5, these words. He says, evil men. Now, when you read the word evil men, think of those who do not yet know God. Evil men do not understand justice. But those who seek the Lord understand it what? Yeah, say it again. Completely. How heavy does that feel? Those who do not know God do not understand justice. But those who seek the Lord, those who know God, understand it, and don't just understand it, we understand it completely. That there is a humbling claim, that is a humbly claim made there for us, isn't it? Especially when most of us would admit the only thing that we know for certain is just how uncertain we are when it comes to justice in every circumstance. And what's more is that probably most of us would say, is that even when we know what justice requires, I know how vividly I feel when my heart tends to ricochet off justice toward comfort or self-protection or even worse, indifference. 
And yet, as we look at the history of the early church, it was these same very four issues of race, poverty, sex, and life, and the way that they handled them that ultimately separated them from the culture. I mean, when we look at the history of the early church, we see that they were sold out for racial justice, absolutely sold out for racial justice that they were deeply concerned about the poor and the marginalized, that they were committed to sex being designed by God, that they were for life, which meant that they were speaking up for the powerless and the vulnerable. It was these four things that separated the church from the rest of the world, and it was because of their faithfulness that the gospel of Jesus moved from a little country in the Middle East through the Roman Empire and eventually into the world. And yet, sadly today, these four issues of justice that so marked the early church have been largely lost in the American church and with it our influence. And so as we enter into this series, I want you to know what our goal is and what our goal is not, all right? And so just so we're all clear, our goal throughout this series, throughout these next five weeks, is not to get political. If you view this sermon series through your red or blue lenses, you will be disappointed and you will miss what God has for us. When it comes to this series, our aim is not to attack the wealthy or a particular race. Our aim is not, our hopes and our aims are not resting in the government that they're gonna change the legislation. That our aim is to address these issues with gospel fidelity. It's what Jesus did, it's what the early church was all about, and it's what our aim is over these next five weeks, all right? Hopefully we can all agree and be there. Now, if you attended church last week, then you got the opportunity to meet our brand new global servants, our missionaries, Larry and Becky Stanton. Last weekend, I got the chance to hang out with them quite a bit, and, and we had a good time. They are awesome people, serving in Hungary with the Syrian refugees and with kids in, in schools. And as I got to sat around and, and learn about them and hear their story, one of the things about their story that stuck out was particularly into Larry and his work. See, when Larry went to Hungary, his aim was not to work with Syrian refugees. In fact, that was as far from what he was thinking he was going to do when he ended up over there. That what he thought he was going to do is work in the maintenance, that he was going to take care of the school that his wife Becky was teaching ESL in. And yet as he landed on the ground there, his work was less about maintaining the school, and he found himself working with the Syrian refugees. And he said, honestly, that when he started working with the Syrian refugees, he held them at arm's length. He said, my culture taught me to hate these people. He said, after 9-11, they went from Arabs to being Muslims, the great enemies of the West, the great enemies of Christianity, and so I just held them at an arm's length, somehow thinking that I was superior to them. And then, God did something miraculous. All of a sudden, Larry started to see their faces. He started to see their families. He started to hear about their values, their beliefs, the things that they loved and hoped for. And no longer was he holding the Syrian refugees at arm's length as enemies, but now he was embracing them as loved ones. And the question that we have to ask is what happened in Larry? What changed in Larry? What happened in Larry that he went from pushing the Syrians away to embracing them? What happened in his life and in his soul that he went from seeing these people as enemies to ones with whom he loved? See, I'm just convinced that if we can figure out the answer to that question, then we will be on our way to radically changing the world and the injustices that it faces. 
And yet when it comes to the injustices of the world, when it comes to our motivation or our problem in society, that that problem is not that we don't know that we should care for people. Our problem in society isn't that even that we don't even know what injustices are happening because we do. The problem is not that we don't know. The problem is, is that we're not motivated to actually do anything about it. Which is why the teachings of the Bible are so powerful in this cultural conversation. Because the Bible doesn't appeal to some moral obligation, some moral duty, which, let's be real, in an age of moral relativism, doesn't matter anyways. But the Bible appeals or makes an argument for a revolutionary dynamic that changes the basis of our motivation. Listen, at the beginning of scriptures, all the way back in the first pages of the Bible, we have and see that humans are set apart from all other parts of creation, all other creatures. That God is putting the creation order into effect and then he gets to the humans and he, and he places people into this world and here's what he says, Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of man, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them. Verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. That God looks at humanity. He blesses humanity. And then he looks over all of creation and he says, this is very good. Now, we need to see this in the early pages of Scripture. That as God is putting creation into place, as he's ordering creation, he's creating the stars and the moon and the sun, and he's putting the birds in the air and the creepy things on the ground and, and the fish in the sea. And after every day of creation, God looks out at the creation and he says, this is good, this is good, this is good. But once humanity is placed on earth, all of a sudden it's not good, it's very good. The reason? Because humanity, which we find out in verse 26, is made in the image and the likeness of God, and now they are here on this earth. This is good. Now, to understand the foundational importance of the image of God, we have to understand a couple of things. Now, this word means a lot of things. It has a lot of full meaning, but for our conversation today, we're gonna look at the image of God and we're gonna focus on two things. First, when it comes to the image of God, the very word means to be a reflection of an object. That's what to be in the image means. It means to be a reflection or to resemble an object. Like if you wanna think in terms of a child to a parent. If any of you know my son, Cademan, you know how true this is, that Cademan and I look almost identical. Like, in fact, we have a picture of when I was a little kid, and I showed it to my oldest son when he was young, and I said, Theo, who is in this picture? And he said, oh, that's easy. That's dad and Cademan. It was my dad and me right? A few weeks ago, we were in uh, Indiana at a family reunion, and my uncle was like at this window, and he was watching all of the kids and the grandkids kind of play out in the park, and I walked up to him, and I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he said, I feel like I'm in a time machine watching 11-year-old Matt play in the park. 
we chuckled, and what he was saying is not that Cademan is like a carbon copy of me, but there's a resemblance, a reflection there that Cademan can never deny that I am his daddy, right? Like, that's just not going to happen. Or maybe think of it the way that an object reflects in a mirror, that when an object reflects in a mirror, there's no way for that mirror to cover every dimension of that, art, of that, of that object, but in the mirror, the object being displayed is a true likeness. It's a true likeness. And so when we talk about the image of God, we have to ask the question, what are we reflecting of God? And the answer to that question is certainly, like when it comes to our personality and our, and our ability to reason and to be creative, all of that, all of that is, is true. But also, originally, the point of, of being an image bearer was so that we could reflect God's perfect character towards creation. That creation would know God through us and our actions towards it. The sacredness of God was put into every single part of our humanity, which leads us to the second thing that we need to know about the image of God. That the image of God means that all humans are created equal before God and therefore worthy of fairness and dignity. That we are all worthy of fairness and dignity. When we hear that, we go, well, that's the kind of world that I want to be a part of. Like, that would be awesome, where all humans, where all people are treated in every circumstance equal, fair, with dignity. And yet the reality for us is we go, <laughs> that doesn't measure up. That doesn't measure up to my experience on this world. And the reason for that is because of our sin. That in Genesis chapter 3, we have what we call the fall, where sin enters into the world. And from that point forward, humanity is constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. And so when we read the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, we see not only people at a personal level, we don't only see families or communities, we see whole civilizations, whole civilizations creating injustice in this world, especially toward the vulnerable. That when you sit down and you read the Old Testament, if you begin in Genesis chapter 1, you figure out pretty quickly that humanity is a huge mess because of our sin. And so God, in Genesis chapter 12, goes to this man named Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to start something new in you. I'm going to use your family, and your family is going to become a great nation. And through this great nation, a community is going to be born. A new community will be known for the way that they walk with me by being righteous, by being righteous. Now, here's the rub for us. When we hear the word righteous, what, it is, what is it that you think of? When you hear the word righteous, what comes to mind for you? Most likely, because we're Western thinkers, we grew up in America, most of us have grown up in the U.S., what we think is private morality. That's what we think of when we think of righteous. Things like don't cheat on your taxes, Sexual purity, be diligent in your prayer. All very good things, by the way. But when the word righteousness or righteous shows up in the Bible, it doesn't mean private morality. In fact, when it comes to the Bible, the Hebrew word for righteous is tzedakah. And tzedakah means to be in right relationship, right standard. It's the ethical standard that refers to right relationship between image bearers of God. It's the day-to-day -day living 
where a person conducts all of their relationships, all of their affairs with fairness, generosity, and equality. That's tzedakah. In other words, it's about treating people, all people, as the very reflection of God with the dignity that they deserve. To which we go, <laughs> what about Texans? <laughs> yes. What about those who own cats? Yes. Right? What about Republicans? Yes. What about Democrats? Yes. What about black, white, Asian, Hispanic? Yes. What about those who do not speak English? Yes. What about those who do? Yes. That righteousness is about every single time you see that word in the scriptures. It's about treating all people as the very reflection of God with the dignity that they deserve. Which is why Malachi 6.8 is such a huge and influential verse. That in Malachi, the Israelites are a little bit confused on what they're supposed to be doing. They've got it confused about what good looks like. And so they're asking the question to God. They're going, God, what is it that you require of us? What does good look like? And here's uh, God's answer to them in Malachi 6.8. Ta-da! He has told you, O oh man, you want to know what good is? Here's what's good. Here's what the Lord requires of you. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. That that's what we're supposed to be about with people. Do justice. Now, let me teach you a little bit more Hebrew today. When it comes to the word justice, in Hebrew, that word means mishfat. That word is mishfat. And mishfat can refer to retributive justice, like if you steal something, you're going to get punished. That's mishfat. But most of the time, when we see this understanding of justice in the scripture, what you're actually seeing is restorative justice. That mishfat can mean restorative justice. And restorative justice is where we actually seek out the vulnerable and we help them. And as we read through the Old Testament, time and time again, what we see is this restorative justice taking place, like Zechariah chapter uh, 7, verses 9 and 10, where God says to the people, he says, the Lord of hosts says this, render true judgment, that's mishfat, show kindness, mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your hearts. Render mishfat, show mercy. Render judgment, show compassion to those who are being made, who are made in the reflection or to be reflections of God. And then the prophet here, Zechariah, he lists four people. He lists four groups of people. And the reason that he lists those four groups of people is because they had no social power. They were the vulnerable. And what we read in passages, scriptures, verses like Micah 6, 8, and here in Zechariah 7, and other passages in the Old Testament, what we begin to understand is that when it comes to God, that when it comes to God, that when we refuse to show justice, when righteousness is not among us, it's not just a, a lack of compassion, but it's actually going against the very justice of God, that it's, that it's a very attack against the nature of who God is. See, we as believers 
are just and do justice because in Jesus, the fall is being reversed. That in Jesus, we can live righteously, conducting all of our relationships with fairness and generosity and equality. That in Jesus, we can enact God's perfect character into the world and show the world what it looks like to know God. That in Jesus, we understand that every single person, every single person is made in the image of God. And that in and of itself gives value. That's our motivation. That's our driver. That's why we do what we do. It's why the church, when the world is crying out for justice and can't even agree on what justice means, it's why the voice of the church is so important in this cultural conversation that we are driven to care for people, that we are driven to do justice, not out of some obligation, some moral obligation or duty, but because every single face that you have ever seen and will ever see is a reflection of the God that we proclaim to worship. See, the answer to what happened to Larry the answer of what changed in his life. Why did he go from seeing them as enemies to loved ones? What happened is the grace of the gospel of Jesus changed his attitude and it changed his motivation. That he stopped seeing them as, as these people and he started to see them as true reflections, true reflections of God in need of someone to do justice and show mercy on their behalf. See, when faces that we see are not just stamped with the labels that the world tells us to put on people, but rather sees them with one label, image bearer of God, then the world can radically change. And there's hope when it comes to injustice. See, the gospel, the grace of the gospel is a powerful, powerful thing. It changes lives. It can change the world's. And if you're here today and you've never experienced the love and mercy of Jesus, I need you to know that you are not your past. You are not what you have done. You are not what others have done to you. That you are chosen. That you are a reflection. That you are an image bearer. You are a masterpiece of God. And he wants nothing more than for you to experience what dignity and worth feel like in his presence. He wants nothing more than for you to experience him calling your name, calling you home. Experience my love, he says. Come home, child. Know what it looks like to be a son and a daughter of a king. To understand righteousness to do justice, to see people as image bearers of God, all people, changes the world, eliminates injustice, and brings hope. If that's a step that you're ready to take today, if you've never taken that step towards Jesus, then I'm simply going to invite you to take a bold step of pulling out your cell phone, and texting the name Jesus to 720-513-1933. And in doing so, we have people who are ready to walk with you down this journey.
As we close today, I want to read a prayer over you. Reagan, one of our other pastoral residents, did the prayer uh, line this week, our email prayer chain this week. And she wrote a beautiful prayer that I just wanted to read over you. So if you would just all bow your heads, I want to read her prayer. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moons and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Father, how often we have asked this question, wondering who I am that you would consider me or even if you consider me. Is this life important? Does it matter? Is it significant to be human? Father, what you reveal is that it does matter that I am, that we are human. You reveal it is significant, and this life is sacred to you. In light of all creation, its beauty, its power, its vastness, you've set humanity above it all, being uniquely mindful of us and caring for us. Father, I repent of the ways that I've thought little or lowly of my own humanity. I repent of not sharing your mindset regarding life and your desire to multiply it over and over again. I repent of my faulty belief that redemption equals the elimination of my humanity. Father, in light of all of this, I pray to become more human, not less. I pray for your church to become fully human as you made us to be, not less. I pray for your will to be done in redeeming all things, particularly us. May your son again come soon so the world might know true everlasting peace, so that your reign might be final and so that we might be fully and truly human once again. Father, that is our prayer today. As we enter into the table of communion, remembering your death and your resurrection, it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Every week we come to the table because the cross is our great hope. That the only way to know that we are fully human, the only way to reflect our true image into this world that so others know God is because of the healing that takes place at the cross. Where we bring our past and our faults and our sins and we lay them at the cross and we watch as our Savior's body is broken. As we watch his blood be poured out so that we might have the forgiveness of our sins. And so we remember today by taking the blood, or taking the bread and drinking the cup as a repetition of the blood poured out for us. going to move into a time of celebration by singing a great old hymn and some songs that speak to who we are and the rock that we stand on. And so here at Thornton, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand online, take whatever posture you want for worship today. And at any point over these next 15, 20 minutes, if you need prayer, we have people ready to pray for you. You can just make your way to the back over here, and we would love to pray with you online. Just click the button. Brad, you can lead us. As we